In 2007, Dr. Thomas Platz Mills started looking into a mysterious allergic reaction patients were having to a new cancer drug. The strange thing? These allergies were clustered geographically. One of his lab technicians started comparing a map of the allergic reactions to other medical maps. And the map that matched it much the best was the map of Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever. Then we started asking all the patients questions about ticks, which I'd never done before. I was never interested in tick bites. That was an infectious disease problem. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. In today's episode, a tick-borne allergy to meat. Later in the show, CRISPR gene editing technology could allow us to bioengineer our way out of problems like tick-borne diseases. But what kinds of new problems might we create along the way? So there could be consequences to the ecosystem. Um, We just don't know what the consequences are. And until we get that sorted out, it's really risky business to go and push ahead. But first, since uncovering the tick-borne meat allergy, Thomas Platz Mills has continued to look into how it works. He's chief of the University of Virginia's Division of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Thomas, you have been an allergist for decades now. Do you remember the first time someone came to you presenting with symptoms that you now know probably were meat allergies? I don't think I can remember the first time, but I do remember one of the patients, we'll call her Ruby, Ruby said clearly that if I eat pork four hours later, I get hives. And so we smiled sweetly and said, you avoid that pork. It doesn't, it's not good for you, thinking that the story didn't make any sense. I know now that there were at least four or five others who I had seen at some time where they told me the story pretty clearly, but I didn't understand it. And unlike Ruby, most of them didn't realize it was associated with having eaten meat hours earlier. Some of them did. Patients would come in and say, it's beef or pork or lamb, but it's not chicken and it's not fish and it's not turkey. That was unusual in food allergy because patients are often very confused. This allergy isn't like peanuts or bee stings. It's not sudden. It's not sudden at all. And that was another thing that was very hard to get our heads around, that someone could eat beef and four hours later, having nothing happened in the meanwhile, have a severe attack which started quite fast. Because one of the rules about immediate food allergy is if they're going to be severe, they usually start fast. When did you have an aha moment and think, oh my gosh, this is real? People are developing, sometimes late in life, allergies to meat. In 2007, we were looking into this cancer drug which caused reactions with hives and a fall in blood pressure, and people could get very sick. And developing a test which would help us identify those patients. And then we realized that the patients who'd been telling us this story about a reaction four hours after eating red meat had the same antibody. In fact, the cardinal case was a gentleman with cancer in 
Arkansas, who died in 20 minutes after the first exposure to the drug. And that was a clue that he must have had the antibody before he ever saw the drug. He wasn't becoming allergic to the drug. He was allergic before he was exposed. What was the thing in both meat and in this cancer drug that they were reacting to? This was a kind of sugar in any mammal. And mammals are everything that has fur and breasts, rabbits, squirrels, beef, pork, lamb. Any of those things carry these sugar and can give rise to reactions. How did you start to think this is a geographical problem and it has to do with tick spread? Yeah. The first breakthrough for us was my technician in the lab who was very smart and he was looking at maps to try and see what map matched this. And the map that matched it much the best was the map of Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever. It turns out that that wasn't correct but it was correct that it was a tick-borne illness. Then we started asking all the patients questions about ticks, which I'd never done before. I was never interested in tick bites. That was an infectious disease problem. Suddenly, we had an allergy related to tick bites, and that was absolutely baffling when we first saw it. Didn't believe it. Had they all been bitten by a tick? We assume so. They all come from an area where there are these ticks. Which ticks are they? Are they the same ones that cause Lyme disease? Almost certainly not. The tick we're dealing with is called the Lone Star tick because it has a white, the adult female has a white spot on her back, which at one point was thought to look like the state of Texas. Where are these ticks? Primarily breeding on deer. And that's our primary hypothesis about why it's increased is the massive increase in deer population on the East Coast. And I think very few people understand that. In 1950, there were virtually no deer all the way down the Piedmont, none in the county round Chapel Hill, where I met a local hunter who remembered the first date in the 70s when a deer was shot that had grown locally. So that from 1950 to today, they've expanded enormously. And in addition, we now have them round our houses. So that at least half the patients we see have received tick bites from their own property. But I thought most of those so-called deer ticks were the ones that called Lyme disease. They weren't the Lone Star tick. Yeah, it's just wrong terminology. The so-called deer tick is actually primarily breeds on mice and is not really a deer tick. You were bitten by a tick in 2007 on a hike along the Appalachian Trail. Part of it was on the Appalachian Trail. I was off trail most of the time. And presumably somewhere during that five-hour hike... I went through a nest of larvae and got 200 on me. But you don't feel them until you stop. And when you stop, you realize, oh my God, my feet are itching, covered with these tiny little black things. And you can't actually see they're a tick without glasses or a magnifying glass. They're very small. Some had bitten in and some were still crawling. 
I scraped them off, went back home, scraped the rest off with a knife, hundreds. And luckily my wife was away because that night odd larvae were turning up all over me and you take them off with scotch tape. And then we took them to the lab and they were actually identified as lone star larvae. Did you say to yourself, oh no, I'm going to get the meat allergy? Well, actually, I said, whoa, we've got a great opportunity to take my blood once a week and watch what happens to my antibodies. And they went up and up and up. And in November, following the August bites, I got my first attack. Where were you? I was in London. And I had a lovely dinner. We ate lamb chops and fine French wine. And six hours later, I was covered in hives, itching like crazy, not anaphylactic, not feeling sick, just feeling stupid. Would you say that your reaction was mild compared to what some people experience? Mine was definitely mild compared to some people. I actually went to visit the house of a patient in southern Nelson County in Virginia who had dropped his blood pressure to 40 and actually went blind during an anaphylactic attack and was lucky to get into hospital and was on adrenaline all night and recovered completely. What's the solution? What is the cure when someone presents with a meat allergy, horrible allergic reaction? Yeah, very few gasping for breath, covered in hives, blood pressure down, clearly dangerous, bad abdominal pain, because if you go into the emergency room with abdominal pain and, you wait, and you're asked, when did you last eat? And you say, six hours ago, no one thinks of allergy. You've got to say itching or hives for allergy to come up. And that's been a problem with a lot of patients. If you get diagnosed... The correct treatment is to avoid mammalian meat. One of the shingles vaccines had too much gelatin in it, which carried this sugar because it comes from a mammal, and the new vaccine has very little. Do you give people an antidote to the itching in hives? Very important. All the patients who have this should carry Benadryl for sure because they should take Benadryl immediately Many of them have to carry an EpiPen. Where in the U.S. are we finding people presenting with this allergy to meat who've been bitten by ticks? Is it just East Coast? No, it goes a long way into the Midwest. We're very interested in an area called Three Corners, which is eastern Oklahoma, northwestern Arkansas, and southern Missouri. And that is a real, a real hotspot. All the clinics there have seen cases, and many of them have seen 100. What are some other hotspots? Lynchburg. Lynchburg, Virginia is a real hotspot. Warrington has tons of cases. And Warrington is lovely because some of the cases are people who own a horse farm and have to clear the, the ride for the hunt, and others who go hunting every day. So hunters are really at risk. Hunters are definitely at risk. There are cases in New Jersey and a few in Maryland, very few in West Virginia, plenty in Kentucky, and a big bunch on the top end of Long Island in the Hamptons. And there are plenty of ticks there, plenty of deer, plenty of wooded. If you fly up Long Island and you watch, halfway up it's houses 
And after that, it's all trees. And in the trees, there are deer. And so the ticks are there. How far north? Cape Cod, very few. Boston area, a few. Into the New England proper, a few. But nothing, nothing comparable to what we see down here. We have a lot of Lone Star ticks and lots of larvae so that there are plenty here. And we have an incredible number of deer. So if you ask what we could do, obviously we could decrease the deer population. The alternative is to stop the leash laws because one of the reasons the deer have got really into the suburban areas is because we don't have a pack of dogs anymore. So for the first time in 10,000 years, the human race is running villages without a pack of dogs. Do you think now all allergists are testing for this as part of the big test that one does for everything that might be causing allergies in someone? No, the prick test doesn't work very well for the red meat allergy. And so the primary thing is history and then a blood test. There's still certainly doctors who are not fully aware of it. Do you think that this meat allergy caused by the Lone Star tick is underdiagnosed? We know it's underdiagnosed, but one of the main reasons it's underdiagnosed is because not all patients get hives. Of course, there's a danger that at some subsequent occasion they'll get a bad attack. And I got a letter from a doctor in Virginia today about a patient who was eating meat regularly and then ate meat and had a very bad attack and had had a previous attack three years ago, but in between was not having attacks. And those patients are really difficult to deal with because persuading them to stop eating red meat if they only get occasional attacks is hard. Thomas Platz-Mills, thank you for sharing your insights on this on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Thomas Platz-Mills is Chief of the Division of Allergy and Clinical Immunology at the University of Virginia Health System. Coming up next, does stopping the spread of tick-borne disease begin in the lab? As genetic engineering technology like CRISPR advances, it's more and more important to ask tough questions about when to use it. How do we balance the reward of eradicating malaria with the risk of throwing off an entire region's ecosystem? Jesse Kirkpatrick is Assistant Director of the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at George Mason University. He studies gene editing technology, And he says we don't need to be afraid of what it can do, but we should be careful. Jesse, before we get into the tough ethical questions raised by gene editing, give me a quick primer on CRISPR, what it is, how it's used. Sure. So in 2012, scientists discovered that there's this obscure bacterial defense mechanism called CRISPR, which has a really clunky name. It's a clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats, um, which is a mouthful. Yeah. So basically what CRISPR does, it's, its best lot of, I think, is a pair of molecular scissors. Right? It allows scientists to uh, edit the DNA of an organism Um, And you think of the scissors coming in and uh, cutting a piece of DNA, right? 
and it allows scientists to insert, delete, or modify elements of that gene. These really, really precise edits in ways that are now faster, cheaper, and easier than ever before. So what does this concept of gene drive have to do with CRISPR? Yeah, so a gene drive uh, allows uh, scientists to use CRISPR to basically push a desired modification through a gene. Think of it like this. Most of us get a 50% chance of getting our mother's or our father's DNA, right? So think of eye color, for example. What gene drive allows scientists to do is basically ensure that almost 100% of future generations of offspring are going to have that desired trait. So what are some of the positive ways that we might want to use this CRISPR for gene drive purposes to eradicate things that seem like no-brainers? One of the most kind of promising lines of research is uh, using gene drive to, um, to eradicate malaria. There are a number of ways that scientists could go about it. Um, so one is that what, what scientists could do is they could edit the gene of a mosquito that conferred sterility to males. Okay, And uh, subsequent generations would inherit this, right? not all of them, but eventually, if the drive works successfully, 100% of those subsequent generations of mosquitoes would be born sterile, therefore crashing the population and making them unable to breed. So how could this be controversial? This seems like such a good idea. Either making a certain population of malaria-carrying mosquitoes sterile or making them resistant. Right. So, you know, as a basic proposition, it seems as if it would be a no-brainer and that we ought to be eradicating malaria. The problem is, is that gene drives are very aggressive in the sense that they spread in a way that is that could be considered sometimes invasive, um, meaning that uh, we're not sure about what the consequences will be. So there could be consequences to the ecosystem and be consequences to other animals that feed on these mosquitoes. Um, we just don't know what the consequences are. And until we get that sorted out, it's really risky business to go and push ahead. But but CRISPR is so easy. It's hard to imagine that scientists aren't using CRISPR to edit genes and experiment in various ways. Well, they certainly are. Um, lots and lots of really excellent research going on in the lab. Um, the real kind of rub comes when we think about when we move these these organisms out of the lab into field trials and into the wild population, that's where it really starts to get tricky and potentially worrisome. And are there any gene drive field trials going on? There are not. And what are we doing at a global level to, um, to police it? I'll give you one example. There's a convention under the auspices of the United Nations called the Convention on Biological Diversity. What the convention's supposed to do is just simply ensure that uh, that state parties are conserving and protecting the environment and biodiversity. So there was a big meeting a couple months ago. It was, I think, in November right, of last year. And there was a coalition of, of actors uh, that wanted to draw a red line and, uh, and put forward a proposal to have a moratorium on field trials of gene drives. So there's certainly a robust debate surrounding the concern with this technology. I should add that the proposal was was eventually rejected, uh, and primarily the rationale for scientists was, you know, they said, uh, we're not going to be able to know the risks unless we be able to run trials with this. Right, and we won't see what happens until we do. 
Well, that's right. And I don't want to dismiss urgent caution and ensuring that the process for which this technology is developed and put into play um, is a way that engages you know, broad communities of people who are going to be affected. Right? So people that live on the ground that you know, live in these places in which these field trials may occur, uh, they need to have a voice in this process. Well, so give me some other examples of what seem like no-brainers to us as far as doing gene editing to solve an intractable problem that seems like a good idea, but maybe we shouldn't. So New Zealand is a sort of thought as as what might be a kind of good test case for this, um, being that it's an island and it's relatively remote, right? And they also have a very aggressive invasive species, right? Rodents, weasels, and so on and so forth. And they want to do something to eradicate these invasive species. The way that eradication occurs now is... um, pretty painful and terrible for these animals, and it's it's generally poisoning. You know, reducing animal suffering while safeguarding the flora and fauna of New Zealand is, um, is certainly desirable. The problem being is that using a certain type of gene drive has the capacity to spread beyond the local population. So we could imagine that scientists in New Zealand go ahead and they use gene drive to eradicate uh, particular species of rodents. And it's believed to be that these are going to be contained. Um, it's also possible, though, that you know, a ship comes in and one of these rodents becomes a stowaway and goes to another island or goes mainland, right? And that this gene drive now spreads throughout a population of species that's beyond that those that were intended to be affected. And that could have really serious outcomes. And it also raises fundamental questions about the role and the voice that people should have in using science and technology in their lives. You mentioned earlier Lyme disease. Could we use the same technique, though, on people to make us immune rather than annual shots against the flu to make us immune to any number of health threats that we face otherwise? It's really unlikely. Again, um, it's certainly theoretically possible that uh, scientists could insert a gene drive into a human being. What's less likely is that it's going to be effective, right? Because remember that the goal of the gene drive is to be passed on to future generations through this kind of super Mendelian genetics, right? A way that almost ensures that 100% of future offspring are going to inherit this. And that's really unlikely with humans because our reproductive time is so short. So humans really aren't a good candidate for this technology. What is the worst fear we might imagine if we allowed the unbridled use of this technology for nefarious purposes? For me, one of the, one of the most concerning things is, is not the kind of worst-case scenario that, um, you know, that we can attach ourselves to. It's the ones that might be sneaking under the carpet to which we're not paying attention. We could imagine that you know, scientists are uh, taking all protective measures, safeguarding their research, really dotting their I's and crossing their T's and making sure that their lab is safe, you know, doing everything ethically. Let's say, and this is the era of, of fake news, we could imagine that um, Russia or China or another country started a, an information campaign that um, and actually what these scientists were doing was unethical or what they were doing was unsafe or that that this mosquito gets out of the lab and it's been weaponized, right? Whatever it is, whatever false narrative that wants to be let out of Pandora's box. Um, And my concern is that with something like that, what we're going to find is uh, people are going to latch on to this misinformation, as we've seen with, you know, anti-vaccination campaigns. We've seen this with uh, opposition to genetically modified organisms and food and so on and so forth. And my concern would be that 
that this false narrative getting out there would really, really turn public sentiment against the science in a way that could very well halt it or set it back. And if that were to happen, you know, there's there's concern about, uh, you know, most of the people who, who are dying of malaria, for example, are those who are living in Africa, poor, often children. And it could really set back, you know, what would be a boon for human health and well-being. This is such a powerful technology that um, transparency is key, right? Science communication is paramount, and uh, engagement with the public is imperative. How quickly do you think this is all changing? The pace of progress in this is just is just astounding. Um, so I started a study on this two years ago, and it required uh, daily vigilance to keep up with the the scientific developments. A few years ago, the National Academies of both uh, China and the U.S. had a human genome editing summit to discuss things like editing human embryos. A few years later, it had been done. That's really remarkable and astounding. The issue here is that the science is outpacing uh, the slow pace of governance and regulation. What do you recommend from the study that you recently concluded? Well, um, one obvious area is that any labs that are engaging in this type of activity have to follow the guidelines that are set out by the National Institute of Health, the NIH, right? So research entities, right, universities um, and others that are receiving NIH funding, they're required to follow certain biosafety protocols, certain ethical requirements, security requirements, and so on and so forth. That's not the case for those research institutions that aren't receiving federal funds. So one, one I think, uh, piece of low-hanging fruit is to make NIH regulations applicable to anyone that's conducting this research, irrespective of them being public or private. Yeah. The other is that I'm worried about uh, I'm worried about genome editing being used in, in ways that we've seen with um, unregulated stem cell therapies. You know, the potential for CRISPR charlatans, right? These people that are making dubious health claims, uh, potentially fleecing people of money, or worse yet, engaging in unregulated practices that are supposed to be quote-unquote therapeutic um, that could have really serious negative health outcomes for people. And so we've seen this with stem cell clinics that are largely unregulated in the U.S. where uh, people have been have been blinded as a result of these kind of shady doctors operating out of strip malls. So the Federal Trade Commission could uh, increase scrutiny for those that are marketing this line of, of sort of off-label use of CRISPR. Um, and these people that are getting put at risk, these are people that are like, you know, have chronic knee pain or back pain. They're desperate, right? They need relief and they need help. But what they're getting basically is therapies that aren't therapies. Did you also make recommendations that relate to biosecurity broadly or the defense of the nation? Yeah, one of the one of the primary concerns is that there's a possibility that um, that CRISPR could be used, or gene genome editing in general could be used for nefarious purposes. So an example would be to increase transmissibility or the virulence of a of a virus, making it nastier and worse, and uh, making people more susceptible to it. There's a whole range in this study of areas of concern that we've outlined, um, while also trying to to really drive home that we ought not lose sight of the really, really important benefits that this technology can yield. Well, Jesse Kirkpatrick, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Thank you. Jesse Kirkpatrick is a professor of philosophy and assistant director for the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at George Mason University. 
This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. From Virginia Humanities, I'm Sarah McConnell. In Japan, when a long, slender, brightly colored fish resembling a dragon washes up on shore, it causes some alarm. Some people there believe the fish's arrival foreshadows earthquakes and tsunamis. Jennifer Martin is an oceanographer and professor of biology at Thomas Nelson Community College. She studies this deepwater fish and why it might be washing up on beaches. Jennifer, fears of a natural disaster in Japan were swirling online after some deepwater fish believed to be harbingers of earthquakes and tsunamis washed up on shore. What were those fish? Those fishes were oarfish. They're usually deep sea fishes. They're not typically found in shore, but they are known to strand, either beach themselves or get caught in coastal nets. What do they look like? Uh, They are extremely large, very slender, ribbon-like fish that are bright silver and have some blue, but they have these amazing crimson fins. And on their dorsal fin, uh, they're extremely long. It's like a, a beautiful red mane. How long can they be? Uh, just just those dorsal fins can be a, a meter or two long, but the fish itself has been documented at 15 meters. Um, most likely they're about 10 meters or so max. And a stranding typically is dozens? Um, not all at once. Uh, within a, a year period, a lot is 15. So, um, you know, before the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, there were about 20 documented uh, strandings throughout Japan. And the 2011 tsunami was the horrible one that killed tens of thousands. Yes, it did. It was uh, it was awful. I mean, there's just no other way to say that. But um, yeah, that was a, they hadn't had that many oarfish wash up in Japan in quite a long time. So so, so they pay attention to oarfish stranding. It's not one beach. It's over an entire coastline. But people take note when one washes up? Absolutely. Um, the, the Japanese name for the oarfish translates roughly to messenger from the sea dragon or sea god's palace. So they associate that um, a, a, such a deep water fish coming onto the beach as a sign of the sea dragon, if you will, Japanese folklore, essentially being mad and punishing by having an earthquake or a tsunami come along. Who in Japan has seen this as a harbinger of tsunamis or earthquakes? I was in Japan about six weeks before that tsunami hit, and I was there uh, researching Uh, the group of fish, the order of fishes that the oarfish belongs in. And I had been at a museum in Tokyo, and I was getting ready to leave to fly north to another museum in the the northern island of of, uh, Hokkaido when a museum curator had called and said, hey, Jennifer just left our museum about a week ago, but unbelievably we have an oarfish and it's still alive. So I um, quickly canceled my flight, jumped on a bullet train, and went about four hours south so that I could see this oarfish. And never in my wildest dreams would I ever imagine I'd have the chance to work on a fresh specimen that had not yet been preserved. So whatever I needed to do to get to that fish, I was willing to do. So I got to the museum about an hour after the fish had died. They, they moved it from the port and it was laying in the basement of the museum. And this one 
was about eight or nine feet long. So um, kind of a baby, if you will. Um, but uh, I was so excited. So I spent all night long, I had a marathon dissection of this fish. But what was really interesting to me, and this is when I realized, like, for the older generation of Japanese that, that are still really in tune with the folklore, that this was really important to them. Because I had a lot of janitorial staff um, that wouldn't even come anywhere near the basement of the museum because they heard there was an oarfish there. And they did not want to be associated with that bad luck. And then earthquake ideas and tsunami ideas started flying around. So let's say not long after the 20 washed up that year, there was a tremendous earthquake and tsunami. There was. about uh, the, the one that I was dissecting about six weeks later, that one was actually caught in a fisherman's net. But they're in shore, so not in deep water. And that was the last one that I'm aware of that had become stranded in Japan before the tsunami hit. Remind us of that tsunami. What happened and where it struck? So um, most people associate that with hearing about the Fukushima disaster, the natural, uh, the power plant that got hit. But there were, I think, 20,000 people that had lost their lives or are still missing as a result of the, the tsunami that came afterwards. That must have been so especially horrifying to you because you had come to know so many people there and spent so much time in Japan. I had. Um, it, and it being so recent, it felt very personal. I was actually giving a talk about the oarfish at a scientific meeting the morning I found out about that and quickly changed a few slides at the end of my talk. But my first concern was, you know, let me contact the scientist I'd just been working with for two months and make sure everyone was okay. And thankfully, everyone I knew was, but there were a lot of people that were not. And it still felt very personal. Is there any scientific basis, as far as we know, for or fish stranding on beaches being harbingers of tsunamis and earthquakes? Uh, no. Scientifically, we don't have support for that. Um, most theories relate it to climate change. So whether we're having an El Nino or a La Nina year and there's temperature changes so that maybe they move inshore a little bit more. Some other ideas is that they're coming towards the surface to reproduce and they get caught in a current. And because they're so long, they're very long, and some people refer to them as snake-like, but they don't swim like snakes or eels at all. They actually orient in the water column with their head up and their tail down. They undulate their dorsal fin, this bright red crimson fin, in a wave-like motion, mainly to move up and down. And how deep do they customarily stay in the ocean? We think between about 200 to 1,000 meters, but... But I think that's a gross overestimate, I would guess. Um, what do you mean? Well, we just, we assume because of their coloration and their very large eyes, and we don't see many of them, they're rare, that they're deep water fishes. But there have been, uh, you know, with technology now, we have, you know, ROVs and there's cameras on oil platforms deep underwater and on buoy lines. And we actually see them in 80 feet of water alive and healthy and, and moving, so not sick or stranded or in any way. So, you know, technology is really giving us much more insight on their natural history and their behavior and distribution. I read another possible scientific explanation, and it was more like a theory, that maybe there are subtle changes in the Earth's crust at the bottom of the sea ahead of an actual earthquake, and that might cause the current to stir and then push the oarfish at the bottom up to the surface. 
What do you think of that? Um, that's certainly possible. Uh, the oarfish are deep water fish, but not bottom-dwelling fish. So they're up in the water column versus being on the bottom of the, of the ocean. So it, it could very easily move them. If they get trapped in a current that's pretty strong, they're, they're at the will of the current. They're not great swimmers. Why do we especially associate them with Japan? Uh, that seems to be where the overwhelming majority of them show up. Uh, on both sides of the island, in the Pacific Ocean and the, the, the Japan Sea, there's a, a lot there, more so than most other places in the world. You know, it's interesting, you know, we had a few oarfish strand off the coast of Southern California a few years ago, and we didn't have an earthquake there. Um, in 2017, there was an earthquake that hit the Philippines, and uh, within 30 days of that earthquake, I think five specimens had washed up in Southern Mindanao. Um, you know, there's statistically, we cannot say they're directly predicting earthquakes. But the truth is, we, we don't know. It's, it's certainly an interesting idea that with more data we could explore. I've read the oarfish is considered beautiful in some of these legends. Absolutely beautiful. Like I said, it's uh, bright silver, has got crimson red fins. I mean, just the most beautiful, vibrant red you could imagine when these things are alive. Um, and the, the idea about the oarfish and the sea dragon uh, came from an old Japanese folklore called Urashima Taro. It's about a fisherman who finds a, uh, a turtle that's being tortured by some young boys, and he wants to save the turtle. And the turtle rewards him by taking him to the sea dragon's palace, which is at the bottom of the ocean. Um, you know, it's folklore, so there's lots of regional variations and uh, the gist of the story is that um, the sea dragon has a daughter, the princess, who falls in love with the fisherman. And she takes the form of this oarfish, this beautiful fish, and travels to land, travels to, to Japan in that form so that she could be with the fisherman. Um, some variations have the princess as the oarfish, and some it's just the oarfish is a messenger from the sea dragon that's at the bottom of the ocean. Are there children's books about this? There are. There have been a few that have been translated to English as well. Um, but it is a, is a fairy tale that I tell as a bedtime story to my own children sometimes. Um, <laughs> Do they love so it? My son does. My daughter's a little too young. But, but my son asks lots of amazing questions about, well, how did that happen? And how can that turn into an oarfish? And um, Salvador Dali actually painted a... Uh, uh, he did a series on Japanese folk fairy tales, and one he titled um, Urashima Taro. And it, I believe it's his depiction of the princess almost as an oarfish because she has this beautiful red hair that's very much like the dorsal fin of these oarfishes. We also believe that those fish are sort of the source of what we uh, think were sea serpent sightings by early sailors. Really? Yeah. Um, if you look at some of the old maps in which they draw these um, amazing sea creatures on them. Many of them are bright red, and they are very similar to what adult oarfish look like. Uh, and when they have that fiery rain, red mane at the surface, and it comes up out out above the surface of the water, six feet or so, that's that that's really impressive. Well, Jennifer Martin, this is wonderful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Jennifer Martin teaches biology at Thomas Nelson Community College 
In 2018, she was named an outstanding professor by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Coming up next, Itsy Bitsy Spider Silk. The soft, colorful silk many of us wear is made from silk-producing worms. But what if we could make a similar fabric from spider silk? Hannes Schneep is a professor of applied science at William & Mary. He studies poisonous brown recluse spiders to learn how their incredibly strong silk is made and how humans might try to replicate it. Hannes, what is it like working with spiders every day, poisonous brown recluse spiders? Yeah, for me, it's just exciting to work on this project and to have spiders in my lab and feed them. That's, that's just a lot of fun. How do you feed them? We give them crickets. Larger ones get crickets. When they're smaller, we just give them fruit flies. And where do you get the brown recluse spiders? Do you go into the field and pick them up one by one? Well, they're not native to Virginia. Uh, so we get them from a gentleman in, in California who first actually sent them to us by mail. But then we figured out that a lot of them actually didn't make, make it through the mail. So he actually ended up coming to a conference. He just brought a few of these little critters in his carry-on luggage. No, he did not. He did. <laughs> so it was almost like in a, in a spy movie. We had a little um, exchange at the, at the airport, and I went on to the lab with the spiders, and then uh, a lot of exciting research started. Now do you create your own? Yes, so we now sustain probably what is one of the few colonies of recluse spiders in the world in our lab. So I would say we have right now 50 to 70 animals. How strong is spider silk? And is the brown recluse spider silk stronger than the others? Um, so by weight, spider silk is about five times as strong as steel. Um, and the, the brown recluse spider is not the strongest of all silks that we know, but it's, it's right up there. So it it's, has very typical numbers for any really good spider silk. Someone has made a dress out of spider silk. Yes, that's quite fascinating. People had to collect the silk from about 5 million spiders just to make one dress that a person could wear. And did somebody actually wear that spider dress? Well, a model uh, wore it, and they, they took a lot of uh, beautiful pictures, but it's now shown in a museum. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever thought about making something fun out of some of the spiderweb material you get in the lab? Sure. I mean, because we, we play around with spider silk every day, we try to build some, uh, some little things. But the thing is always that spiders only make tiny amounts of silk, so what we have are only tiny things. You actually harvest the silk from the spiders. You somehow, without getting bitten, turn the little spiders over on their backs. That's correct. So we, we keep them in little plastic vials, and then we just let them out. Then we expose them to carbon dioxide, which just makes them numb for a few seconds. So they, they fall asleep for about half a minute. So then we flip them on their back and just carefully hold them down uh, on some styrofoam. And once they're uh, fixed there, then we can start pulling the silk and milking them for a while. And then we can reel that, that silk and collect as much as we need to do, our, to do our experiments. How did you discover that the brown recluse has a different spider silk than other spiders? Yeah, I got this hint from a, a collaborator of mine, Fritz Walrath, who is a professor at the University of Oxford in the Department of Zoology. And he has worked 
with spiders for decades. He is pretty much the guy when it comes to spider silk. And what is different about the brown recluse silk from other spiders? Silks from other spiders, in most cases, they're, they're round, like a, a cable or like a, like a hair. And the brown recluse spider, as far as we know, from over 45,000 known spider species, it's the only one uh, that makes a silk that's not round, but it's a flat tape. Uh, it really makes it unique. For instance, it's very sticky because it's so flat. So all matter is actually sticky if you come close enough to it. If you have something rough and, and stick it to a wall, it would, just, it would just fall down. But if you make it in a way that it can conform to the wall and actually make many contact points, it'll be sticky. I mean, another way to make something sticky is just to make it soft, right? So if you take a piece of uh, Play-Doh, you can stick it to the wall and it just sticks there because of that. But the trick is to, to get something that's hard and really stiff and still make it sticky. And the way that the recluse spider solved this problem is just by making it very thin. Huh. What sort of web does the recluse spider spin? It makes a web that looks pretty messy from far away. It just walks over the ground and it, it puts out all the silk all over the place. But we looked closely at that silk, first with a magnifying glass and then with microscope, and we found actually that it's not a random mess, but it's carefully made small loops that the silk produces while it walks around and lays out its web on the ground. And what we found out is that the spider has a little spinneret that's almost like a little sewing machine that's at the end of the abdomen of the spider where the silk comes out into these carefully uh, made loops that are almost perfectly the same size. The spider has to make these very fast, so it makes about 15 of these loops per second. And then just as it walks around, it lays all these looped silk. It's almost like barbed wire so that, that it, it lays it out so that other animals can get stuck so that the spider can eat them. You made two discoveries. One with a magnifying glass, that there are these phenomenal loops that are made by this one spider. And the other thing was using a much more powerful microscope. You discovered that it was flat, like tape or fettuccine. Yes. When we looked very closely with an atomic force microscope, we saw that there is this nanostructure in the spider silk that was very exciting. So it almost looked like a piece of textile that had all these fibers that are running parallel to make this uh, ribbon. About how many fibers for the one ribbon? It's about 2,500. Where'd you publish your information? Well, this uh, article came out about three months ago in a journal that's called ACS Macro Letters. It's the world's most highly respected polymer journal where people publish things about plastics and spider silk is an, is an example essentially of a biological or a natural polymer, a natural plastic. So what are you thinking the applications could be? What does this suggest to you in terms of discovering a new material? I think this will really help us a lot to understand better why spider silk has these amazing properties. And once we figure that out, then we really can think about the next step, how to synthetically make materials that have similarly exciting properties. Do we already anywhere make synthetic spider silk? This is actually starting right now. There are a few um, startup companies that are trying to do this at a, at a larger scale. The interesting thing about spider silk, it's really 100% protein. So all these uh, exciting properties that spider silk has, they, they come from a, a material that you can essentially eat. And the trick is now how to mass produce this protein. And right now, the most promising approach is to use genetically altered bacteria that have 
a piece of the DNA that looks like the DNA from the spider in their DNA so that they can actually make the protein that looks like the silk protein. And then you can mass produce it, uh, collect it, and then you can uh, start thinking about making materials out of it. So there's this uh, startup company. They have now uh, made synthetic fibers, and they actually made ties out of uh, synthetically made spider silk. <laughs> have you seen one? I have not seen one. So they only sold a small number of them. Uh, one of my students uh, applied for the lottery to get one, but we did not end up getting one. But there's a difference between making the protein that spiders use for their webs and making something synthetically that mimics what the brown recluse does which is it emits this flat tape-like web, which is very unique and could have special properties. Yes. So what we are excited about in this tape is that it is so sticky. So we're thinking uh, about making maybe a new generation of adhesive materials. One way that I look at this is that if we can really mass produce a material like spider silk, there are great opportunities. Uh, it is a material that has better properties than, than pretty much every plastic that we can make synthetically. At the same time, it's really a material that's made by spiders in a totally sustainable and benign way. So if you think about all the plastic that's now drifting around in the ocean and that will still stick there for a very long time and create all kinds of problems, if we can make our plastics out of uh, biological matter or maybe even produce it using organisms, it will be a much more uh, sustainable way to actually use materials. And once you have that protein, you can make all kinds of things uh, out of it, right? So you can, you can make a fiber that would maybe replace Kevlar, which is the material that we're currently using in, in bulletproof vests or helmets or in your car tires. But then we can also think about other application, for instance, in biomedicine, all right? Because if it's a biological, biogenic material, we can actually put it in an organism without uh, having to expect a lot of adverse effects. Why do you think that you and your graduate student were the first to notice the loops in the brown recluse spider web and to see that the tape that is emitted from the spider is actually made of these thousands of other fibrils? I think the loops we only discovered because we were the first to look. And this actually would have been very simple to find out. So all it would have taken is getting a $5 magnifying glass. You could have spotted these loops, but nobody really bothered to look for it. For the other uh, discovery, these nanofibrils in the ribbon, we needed a very expensive atomic force microscope that cost several hundred thousand dollars. And there are not a lot of these around and not a lot of people who really know how to get the best images out of them. And using this kind of uh, hardware, we were then able to, to reveal this, this beautiful nanostructure in the ribbon. It's so, it's so interesting. I feel like we're at an inflection point when it comes to plastics in the environment. And I love hearing you say that you and others are really looking for ways we can use other materials. Yes. So the, the idea that it's uh, naturally produced without consuming petroleum, without using any you know, toxic chemical plants, without producing toxic waste, to me that's totally fascinating. right? So these, these little spiders that we have in our lab, we feed them a cricket once a week. And that's actually more than they, than they need to eat. And just from this one cricket, they produce all this wonder material, which is in many respects better than anything that we can make synthetic. So I think there's a lot for us to learn from nature to come up with uh, much better and more sophisticated materials for the future. Han 
Anna Schneep is a professor of applied science at William & Mary. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Additional music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.